If you can believe it, we're already halfway through season four and another grueling academic year. So far, we've been able to spend time thinking deeply with the wonderful Peps McRae, Sarah Farrell, Charlotte McKechnie and Cassie Young. And today we're going to explore, amongst other things, leadership with the eloquent, concise and erudite Nick Hart. But first, I want to say a massive thank you to all of our supporters on Kofi. As you might know already, we want to keep Tadape advert free so that our recommendations remain impartial and born of genuine interest and inspiration. But things like Zoom, the primary mode of episode recording, won't be free forever. To help support the podcast, you can subscribe at kofi.com forward slash Tadape by choosing one of three different subscription levels, each of which will provide you with access to episode transcripts, priority episode requests, monthly CPD videos, or even all of the above. To show your support, visit kofi.com forward slash Tadape. That's ko-fi.com forward slash T-D-A-P-E. But I think that's enough for me for now. So without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. Nick, thank you very much for joining me. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I think people will be familiar now that we always start with our guests and numbers just to get a feel for who they are and where they're from. And so my first question is years as a teacher. That is 16. I didn't realise it's so high. <laughs> it's hard to keep track of, isn't it? Once you get past this. I know. <laughs> I had to count my fingers. I had to start off and then count my fingers to, uh, to make sure I got that one right. <laughs> years as an executive head teacher? So I only started in September, uh, so it's, it's two, two months. Probably a better answer is four years as a head. First year group taught? That was year four. I think I'm, I got put in a safe year as a, as a, as a trainee. <laughs> I think we all do. Not many of, not many of us that get, get given the, uh, the big gig of reception or year six or year two. Year four, <laughs> year four was a starting point. Very true. Last year group taught? That was year five. Year five, yeah. I thought it was year six. I had to think back, but um, I, I got moved out of year six into year five um, to, to to support as children lower down. So yeah, year five was, a, was the last one. I suppose the, the more leadership responsibility you have, the more sense it makes for you to have a... I think I was deputy head at the time. Uh, and so, yeah, being in year six and being a deputy head is a, is a tough job. Yeah, I can, I can agree. Most important year group? That was easy uh, reception, easily reception. The, the, the learning that happens um, in, those, in that first year of school is so important for later years. So easily reception. Favourite year group? I think six. Six is just so much fun. The children are coming to the end of a, a stage of their education. They're growing up. You can kind of they're developing great sense of humor they're learning lots becoming far more intelligent and aware of the world um uh, and that those last few months of year six were always such fun yeah Part I was... that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think for, for me it's, it's almost the last point that i really understand what children are thinking you know i think once they get into the yes. teenage years you know they have <laughs> no idea what's going on <laughs> yeah it's just a minefield after that <laughs> Blog posts at thisismyclassroom.wordpress.com. That's 86. And I don't know how that happened either. 86. I remember starting that blog 
just trying to write down things that I was thinking about. And um, yeah, 86 seems like a lot, but it, I suppose it is about just nearly 10 years. So actually not too bad. It feels like yesterday still starting starting it. But um, yeah, 86, not too bad. I mean, it's, it's prolific and consistent. You know, I think well, <laughs> quite often people will give up after about three months and say, I'm done with this, but 10 years is impressive. Yes, yes. I mean, I've been through kind of uh, busy periods and uh, quiet periods. I, I, I do find it useful for trying to figure out what I think about things. I sometimes I don't realise until I've written it down, which is really useful. And if it's helpful for others, then uh, that's even better. Yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, sometimes, well, oh, I didn't realise I thought that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> blog hits so this is just under 250,000 which it, it seems ridiculous I'm sure a lot of those are my mum probably logging in trying to get the number up seems like a lot but I suppose I, again it has been kind of about 10 years so yeah hopefully it's been useful for, for people oh, I definitely I definitely think it has and then the big one tweets I was surprised by this one I, I mean I a lot for, for the right at the beginning of using Twitter, I kind of just lurked and didn't really do much. But I've managed to, to rack up 10,000 over 10,000, 10. 10. 10.2,000. I mean, I, I'm almost certain a lot of those are retweets. I often uh, do that rather than actually contributing anything of any value. More so, I think recently I've been uh, more bravely sharing things than, uh, than simply lurking. Yeah, it, it takes a while to get the lay of the land. I certainly was very quiet at the start and was thinking, you know, what, what's what's the setup here like? Because, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's a smart move. You know, I think, yeah, I don't know if you heard in at the end of last season, Steph Elliott had 140,000 tweets. So it's almost ruined that question because I doubt we're ever going to get anybody who's <laughs> even close <laughs> that's Some commitment there to get that number. So you're an executive head teacher, visiting fellow at the Ambition Institute and one third of the team behind the new research aid, Berkshire. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. I think that can quite easily be summed up with being in the right place at the right time. I think I've been incredibly lucky at various points. Um, I, starting off as, as a teacher, I kind of ended up being an assistant head and a deputy head because of circumstance. Uh, it seemed to be the, the last man standing, if you like, in, in, in terms of, who's in there running for those positions when people moved on, which is, um, it's very, it's very, it's very lucky. And uh, it got to a point where I was doing, I was doing all right and being successful. And I thought, okay, I need to, I need to, I need, I need more of a challenge. I need to try and prove myself. I need to see if I can do this somewhere else because I think it's, it's easy to be in one school. So then we um, took a sideways move um, as a deputy head in a different school to work with someone I'd, Kind of respected for a while he moved on uh, and I became a really odd job of a, an acting co-head and I, th and I thought okay I'm doing a job might as well I, I might as well do it properly and outright on my own so found first headship after that in a in a mat learned a lot but didn't like it so came back to local authority headship and been loving that ever since the executive head thing is it was never planned. It was never deliberate. It's um, a circumstance. It's uh, the governing boards of two neighbouring schools decided when the opportunity arose to to federate, and and here we are. And it's a it's a great opportunity. I'm enjoying it. The executive head. I don't think anyone kind of wakes up in the morning uh, as a 
as a as an early career teacher and thinking they want to be an executive head. It's a fairly new position. The circumstance is probably the biggest reason with where I'm, what I'm with where I'm now and what I'm doing. Um, social media has played a huge role in all of that. I think if there was one thing that made a difference to my career, it's uh, learning from other people on social media. I, I was completely unaware of this kind of world where people talk about education who are really intelligent and know what they're talking about. I, my, my training was a graduate teacher program, learning on the job, learning, learning in the school. And, and missed, I missed out all that stuff on kind of what learning is and loads of other examples of, of knowledge. And finding that was a revelation. Really, and I think that really has contributed a lot to, 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 what, I, to what I know now and what, I, what I'm doing now. I'm really grateful for standing on the shoulders of others, really, to, to, to get to what I'm doing at the moment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you know, because conversations that people were having on Twitter in maybe 2017 are becoming part of government policy now, aren't they? So anyone yes. who's involved in those yeah. conversations, you know, looks as if they're the oracle. <laughs> and then, but like you said, it's just listening to people who spend a lot of time thinking about, their, about the craft, don't they? You know, so, yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of good we can take. We've um, We've actually got it federated local with a special school and a primary school. Like you said, circumstance brought them together, but actually they're really strong because of the sort of relationship that they have with each other. So it's really interesting to hear that you're involved in that sort of, sort of model as well. It's an, it's an interesting model. And I think in some ways it's better than a primary model because in our federation, there's a, an infant school and a junior school. And the, the difference between educating a four-year-old and an 11-year-old is huge. And sometimes I think in primaries, you can fall into the trap of dominating the kind of edu education for all children based on year six, because that's the, that's the, the end point. That's the year that gets all the accountability. And, and often you get leaders in those years in, in, higher up the school as well. And so sometimes it can be dominated, like lower down the school with what's happening higher up the school. But the federation model preserves the two education stages. And I think that's a real strength of our one is shared uh, kind of values and aligned practices, but recognizing that educating four and five year olds is massively different to educating 10, 11, 10, 11 year olds. Yeah. Yeah. And then slap them. Yeah. Drawn on expertise in different areas mm. and really getting the most. Yeah. I totally get that. And, um, you know, I think you're probably being a little bit modest when you say you're, you know, you're lucked out in circumstance. I reckon there's a lot of hard work over those 16 years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've committed a, a lot of time to reading and understanding and, and I've I managed to take advantage of those opportunities when they've come up. I think early on, I, I would probably have said, don't want to be a deputy head, don't want to be a head teacher, not interested, just want to be a great teacher in the classroom. But then things change. And I think what changed was wanting to influence more than just the 30 children in, that, in, in my class and wanting to, to provide what I thought was great education to the rest of the school and beyond. I think that's what changes at some point that I hadn't accounted for. And when you, when you took your sideways move, was that something you knew you needed to do, you know, so you could experience leadership from with a group that you had no sort of prior relationship with what was going through your mind when you made that decision? It got, it got to a point where it became a bit easy. So I was kind of in charge of different things. The school was doing well. And it got to a point, I remember thinking at one point where I, I, could, I could stand up in a meeting and say, I think we should all 
teach with red socks because that makes a real difference and everyone would, would wouldn't question it. It, it it wasn't as much of a challenge as it was before and i and i thought okay i need I, I need to know if i can do this somewhere else and wanted to wanted to take a chance to to prove that to myself really and so what would your guiding principles for leadership be then so i think there are broadly two i think and the first one the most important one i think is that if you're in charge you've got to know stuff you've got to to, to know a lot about education and school life. I was listening to Vivian Robinson for, uh, she was talking to Ambition Future Leaders, I think last week. And what, something she said really kind of hit home. She said, paraphrasing, probably got this wrong, but she said something like, uh, if leaders can't articulate the educational reasoning behind the decisions they make, then they're not going to be able to influence staff. And, and, and that is the important difference between leading and managerialism and I, I think we can all kind of think of times when we've been told or asked to do something as a teacher which we know doesn't feel right or doesn't feel like the best use of time but we might do it anyway because we've been kind of told by whoever's in charge to do it and I think that we owe it to the staff that we lead to to have thought things through really carefully and to be able to answer challenging questions about why are we doing this um, and, and that comes down to, to knowledge it comes down to knowing a lot not just things like educational theory and cognitive flowed and how children learn and effective cpd not just those things but kind of the hidden knowledge as well that that, that is in our schools that's kind of how our school works our own school context the intricacies of how people interact in our schools and what makes people tick like that that, that counts as knowledge as well we need to to know that i mean you can't just be an expert in uh, education and walk and drop yourself into a school and for it to work i mean i experienced that myself when i made that sideways move as a deputy head i, I at that point i knew kind of a fair amount about how I think school should run. And I knew the school context really well, I haven't been there for years, but then transferring over to a different school, I still knew what I knew, but I didn't have the trust and respect of a whole new team because I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how things worked. I didn't know how, what people thought about education. I didn't know what the underlying beliefs were about all sorts and, and, and therefore, I was nowhere near as good in those early stages in the, in the new school as I was in the previous school because there was a huge chunk of knowledge that was just missing. Secondly, uh, in terms of in terms of leadership, I think it's really important just to treat people well. <laughs> I've I've heard so many horror stories of how leaders treat staff, and I, and it just makes me cringe. What what staff do every day is Kind of down to us and i think stopping people from doing things that don't have an an impact on children or maybe or or, or maybe kind of maybe do a little bit but are very time intensive that it's things like that make a huge difference and you only have to look on online at the moment and see the amount of exhausted teachers saying how how tired they are how much work they've got on and i think it's a treating people well has to has to 
has to be top priority because it's it's the staff that make the school. I think there's this there's this common sentiment about putting children first. I think that's very noble, but I think it's misunderstood. You can't if if we're putting children first, then we'd teachers be working twenty four seven. Would be planning, marking, assessing, and there wouldn't be an end to that. I think it's not children that come first it's staff that come first because if staff are flourishing if they're rested and knowledgeable and motivated then children will be fine they'll 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 get a great education but if if we're if, if how we treat staff is actually making the climate worse because we're demanding things calling things non-negotiables and things like that that, that has a huge impact on on climate in terms of treating people well the the head and the senior leaders mood is really important like their mood sets the climate and one thing I think is really important is being emotionally predictable and what I mean by that is is that there's never a situation where there's a surprise or people are unsure about how you're going to react to something there are two particular emotions that I don't think have any place in school when they're anger and panic there's never any reason for for those two emotions they're just negative um, and, and have a, such a, a terrible effect on on other people, and therefore staff won't be able to do the job as well if they're if they're seeing anger and seeing panic. No one's going to be able to work effectively in that in that in that environment. So I think yeah, two things. One is uh, knowing loads, and the other is treating people well. I, I'm I'm totally with you on invest in your teachers, and then you will be putting the t- the, the pupils first, so to speak, won't you? You know, and uh, to be fair, it sounds like I really want to work in in one of your schools. <laughs> you're speaking my language in terms of leadership. <laughs> I think something to add there as well is is developing others. Part of treating them well is developing them. I, I mean, it's really important that teachers and and other staff become kind of as good as they can possibly be. And I, I I've heard before about uh, kind of reluctance to invest in people because they might leave, which is a crazy, crazy concept. I think if you're thinking, well, what if they leave, then you you don't understand how schools work. People do leave. It's very rare for people to stay in one job for more than kind of five, seven years, I think. I think heads are three years or maybe three, four years on average, I think I read. Uh, and teachers, I'm, I'm assuming something similar, people will leave. But I think my, my take on that is if we produce really good teachers, if we if we develop really good leaders and they do move on, that just means that more children get to go to great schools and have great teachers, not just our, our, the school we have at the moment. I think competition between schools is wrong. If If one school is doing really well and the school down the road isn't, because of competition or not sharing then that means that there's a whole bunch of children missing out on education that they that they should be getting um as standard and part of what i think good leadership is kind of system leadership it's it's contributing more to 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 the community and and what what i mean by that is the education community not just kind of local but contributing more so that it's more likely that we all raise our game so more children benefit. Yeah, it goes right back to that point you made at the start about having an impact on the greatest number of children. You yeah. Know, if you're if you're developing people and then they go off and become deputy heads in other schools, you know, then that it mushrooms, doesn't it?
It does, it does. And so how do you go about building trust in a school or organization? And, and does this differ from how you try to build culture? So I've been thinking a lot about this recently. And, and I think, first of all, there's a, a, a difference between culture, um, which is what, what staff do every day, what colleagues do every day, and climate, which is how it feels to work um, in our school. And I think trust is part of the latter. Trust is part of the climate. Trust is an outcome. It's not something that, that you can kind of do. It's a, it's a result of your actions. Um, so I think, broadly speaking, I think if you get culture right, if you get kind of the, the working practices right in terms of what we're asking staff to do, how we interact, then trust is a, is, is a, is a part of that, along with lots of other elements of climate-like. Uh, the feeling of autonomy or the feeling of motivation or the feeling of purpose or the or the feeling of flow there's loads of kind of other bits that are very much interrelated um i think and uh, and, and in terms of building trust i think if you if, if you think to people in your life that you trust who what what do they share they share predictability reliability you know that if you trust someone, they've got your best interests in, at heart. I think it's no different for school. I mean, trusting relationships are very complicated, very complex. But in terms of a school in a working environment, I think number one thing, you've got to be good at your job. You, can, you can't expect someone to trust your judgment or to trust what you're saying or to, 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 to be on board if they don't think you're good at what you do. So I think the very first thing is make sure you know what you're talking about. Make sure you can walk, walk the talk. And this is um, when I when I started uh, second headship, we we had um, quite a number of new subject leaders who were taking on middle middle leadership roles, like yeah, like English and maths, for example. And looking back, one of the first things I said to them was, "Don't try and do anything yet." just make sure that you know the subject inside out because there's going to come a time in weeks or months where you're going to give someone advice on how to teach or what to teach and you if you can't do that then you won't have credibility you you have to earn that credibility by knowing what you're talking about and so where others might have got them to write an action plan or got them to go and observe lessons I said, don't do any of that. Just make sure you know our curriculum and make sure you have a really strong idea on what good teaching is um, and you're doing it yourself in your classroom. Because the very first, the, the, the first thing that will happen is you will say, I will show you. And then the, the others will come to your classroom. And I think that worked really well. And I, I, right now, the, the subject leaders that, that we've got are the most expert I've worked with, I think. And... And I think they, they all have such credibility and such trust from others that it's, it's, it's a brilliant situation to be in. I think I'm really grateful for, for their expertise and, 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 how, and how they work. So I, I think, yeah, one of the main things is being good at your job. You've got to, you've got to be good. There's a really interesting um, phenomenon called boss competence, which contributes to trust. I mean, if, uh, I can't remember where it's come from, uh, but... If you're confident that your line manager can do your job, you're, you have far more trust and far more faith 
So I think it's really important for us to, to, to show occasionally that we know what we're doing, <laughs> whether through whether through talk or through action, it's, it's a massive part of, of building trust. Yeah, and it's, it's a difficult one, particularly the further into senior leadership you get, because the opportunities to be in the classroom, you know, they, they really reduce down, don't they? But I think you're absolutely right. You know, and being able to walk the walk the talk makes a big difference. Like um, one of the first things I did when I established this sort of role that I've got at the moment was say, okay, let's teach together. And to be honest, that, that became the model for the rest of the time because it works quite well, I think. Um, but it, it does buy a lot of a lot of credit for um for those difficult conversations down the road, doesn't it? So I think you're probably the best person to ask this next question to then. There are really big expectations on subject leaders at the moment. What can senior leaders do to give them the support they need to flourish? First of all, I think subject leadership is such a hard job because often you don't get time to do it. Often you there's no extra pay. It's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a difficult job to do. And I think first of all, subject leadership is just a, a kind of a branch of curriculum leadership, which has to come from senior leaders. You, something I don't like that I, that I see relatively regularly is kind of complete delegation of subject leadership to subject leaders from kind of the head or senior leaders who, who maybe don't fully understand what it is that they want or that the school needs. And then pass that on completely. I mean, I'm also very aware that I'm talking primary school model here of of subject leadership. There's so much that that subject leaders could do, and uh, subject leaders will, will kind of follow the model that they see. They'll follow the example that they see. If if they see senior leaders as people that come and observe lessons and then give feedback, they'll want to go and observe lessons as soon as they've got a subject leader job, they want to go and observe to see what's happening. And that's relatively useful, I think, to go and see what's happening around the school. But for what reason? I, th I think going to see for your own knowledge building is useful. Going to see so you can go and give feedback to teachers on how they're teaching French is probably not as useful. The reason why I think senior leaders need to retain a lot of the work is because of how important it is it's the the, the education and the, and the curriculum that is that is taught is probably the most important thing that, that probably the most important system that we have in school so the first thing i think that leaders need to need to do is give subject leaders a clear direction what is it that subject leadership is i mean when i was uh, starting out as a subject leader subject leadership was tidying the cupboard and I, don't, I think that changed now, that, that the model of what's good subject leadership has changed. I think there's far more emphasis on um, knowing and understanding curriculum choices, which is really hard for a teacher to do. No, no one gets trained in how to do that. So therefore, it's a senior leadership job. It's a senior leadership job to provide direction, to focus attention um, on what, make, what things are important, and then to make sure there's enough time to do it. A combination of those things is what leaders need to do for subject leaders. But I'm also aware of kind of I'm talking from a position of a relatively large school of multiple staff. I mean, I have absolutely no idea how you manage it as a small school with each teacher managing three, four five subjects and knowing what we need to know in as much depth. I think that's a really difficult one that I would I'd, 
I just can't imagine how that works, to be honest. Yeah, because you, you could end up with a situation where they're getting a deep dive in two or three subjects, you know, should they be inspected? Yeah. That would be quite an intense situation. Yeah, because when I spoke to John Hutchinson, he said that the head teacher is the person with the oversight of the, mm. the curriculum at large. Do you reckon that can be outsourced or does it have to be with the, the head of school head teacher? I think the head needs to know it. I think the, the most important system in the school, if the head doesn't know it, then there, how can any other decision be made? More than knowing it, though, is it's directing attention to, to, different, to different subjects. I mean, there are, what, 12, 13 subjects that primary school children learn. Um, and if you've got 12 or 13 subject leaders all thinking their subject is really important and all asking teachers to do things and all requesting things and, and giving advice, that's completely unmanageable. And I think heads need to be kind of the, the gatekeeper. I've got another analogy for this, which is quite interesting. Have you seen the movie, the movie Split? Is that with James McAvoy? That's the one, yeah, that's the one. Uh, and, and so in, in that movie, there's the, the character with multiple personalities. Uh, and, and the way that he talks about it is that each one takes the light at different points. And I think that's what kind of what heads need to do with, with subject leaders is they can't all do what they need to do at the same time. Heads need to decide, right, at the moment, the priorities are these subjects. These, these ones take the light and others can take a back seat for a little while. And that gives subject leaders time to, to, to know when, when they are championing their subject and time when they can back off a little bit and not be in the spotlight. And I think it's a really important job for leaders to do is not just know the curriculum, but also to manage the attention of everyone on certain subjects at certain times, which is incredibly difficult. It takes a lot of, you've got to know everything in order to do that. You've got to know the, the state of the French curriculum as well as outcomes in DT, as well as standards in, in writing. You've got to, to know all of that in order to choose which one teachers pay attention to and which subject leaders take the light. That's a, pheno a phenomenal analogy. <laughs> um, I need to go and watch that now. <laughs> yeah, and I know that people who listen are big fans of the analogies that they could use, but you know, I could feel connections being made in my, in my brain whenever I was listening. I was like, that makes so much sense. Um, and and you know, I'll be going back to my schools at the end of this break, <laughs> and I'll be, I'll be quoting that. <laughs> so what's your approach to professional development? How do you support your staff in their efforts to continually improve? I've got a pretty underwhelming answer for this, I think. I don't, there's nothing groundbreaking. There's nothing unique, I don't think. But, and first of all, if we're talking teachers, at the moment we're into into the stage of thinking that the model of weekly insets is a bit redundant and we're, we're looking at different ways of doing things but I think even even that inset model of um, or weekly meeting model of, of of CPD is not the one that makes a difference anyway I think if I look back at how we've got uh, the quality of teaching to where it is right now it's pretty as much as simple as having really clear strategies for say maths and writing and reading and for how we teach other subjects, uh, having a clear curriculum, like having real structure in terms of what it is that we think good teaching is and, and what, we, what we want teachers to do. And then pretty simply enabling lots of conversations about it. So we have three teachers in every year group. If I'd have created a system where 
they all have PPA at the same time, but they don't talk to each other in that time, then there's no point, there would have been no point in changing that system. And so one thing we did was say, uh, okay, you've got, you've got the time together for PPA, but how you use that time is really important. You come to that meeting with next week's plans, the, your, your initial plans for next week, and use the time to talk about how you're going to teach the content and the sequencing of lessons. Don't come to that meeting saying, what should we do for fractions next week? Because that's not a good use of collaborative time. So there's a bit of, a, a bit of initial guidance on how to collaborate and how to use the time well and to have conversations about the content and how it's taught, um, which is run by the year leaders, which is great. And then let that system become a main driver of CPD because there's, there's sometimes we can kind of talk about something in CPD sessions and then teachers might not ever do anything with it soon enough to be useful. If CPD is done through PPA sessions, that work is being fed into the lessons that are happening next week and therefore more likely to, to stick. And then if you've got other people talking about it, you're more likely to commit to action, important aspects of habit change. So I think that, that was, that's the main driver really. It's enabling conversations to happen in different areas. We also have kind of subject leaders who uh, will occasionally ask to get together with the, the people that are planning. Again, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have multiple teachers in each year group, three teachers in each year group. So the way, the way our system works is that one, for example, one person plans reading, one plans maths, one plans writing, and they share. And so our reading, writing, and maths leaders will occasionally meet all the people that are planning reading or writing or maths and then and then talk through kind of the sequences that are coming up and back to the active ingredients of those strategies to make sure they're being incorporated and it i think it's as underwhelming and as, as simple as making sure people talk to each other about what they're teaching and how they're teaching it i don't think it's underwhelming at all because whenever you mentioned earlier on about you know standing on the shoulders of giants finding stuff um, and i think it sort of snowball and i was thinking right okay is it possible to have that kind of dissemination of knowledge without it having to rely on chance that we come across a blog by Carl Hendrick yeah. or, or something like that? And then from there, you, you have places to go. But looking at your model, you know, where you're enabling those conversations, I think, yeah, that's you can, you can feed in. Well, here's a bit on Rosenshine. Here's a bit on effective questioning strategies. And then, you know, mm. here, you know, the, the New South Wales report on cognitive load theory you know you can mm. you bring that into those conversations and then you, and then you've got staff who are talking about the things that are you know certainly that we value is, that makes a lot of sense it's, it's easy to neglect teaching assistants but teaching assistants uh, have a, a, such great potential to make a huge difference and something that we've done in the last couple of years is is use the early career framework materials with, with teaching assistants those materials that were that are freely available the videos the workbooks, the reflection questions are so good. Why don't why not use them with teaching assistants in small chunks and 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 take the time to make sure that they're involved in conversations about learning and behavior and subject knowledge because they're doing the same thing. They're helping children to to learn and to behave and to and and to attend to to the right things. And so that's something that has been quite enjoyable is seeing uh, our teaching assistants 
work through the early career content. Do you find that many of your teacher assistants have aspirations then to go on into teaching? So we have one, two, three, four. I think there's four at the moment who do, plus maybe another two or three that want to then go into the HLTA role and, uh, and, and train and, and do the and do the cover thing. And I think you, you can only do that if school systems are, are great. Teaching assistants, they sometimes don't get the same deal as, as teachers. Sometimes if, if the school culture if school culture is not right, children might see them as having lower authority. But the way that we set up training and uh, set up kind of authority in the school is that every adult is equal. We expect equality of adult authority. And so if a, if a teaching assistant can walk into a class having to cover at last minute for an illness or, or, or something and know that <laughs> there isn't going to be an issue with children's behaviour uh, or anything like that, then it's far more safe to be able to take the risk of teaching something that they enjoy. In fact, what one of our, a couple of our um, phonics experts for children that need a bit more work are teaching assistants. They've done the, the training with John at Sounds Right and they, they run the intervention sessions because they're particularly interested uh, and they're, they're now very knowledgeable. And I think it's a, they're such a wonderful kind of part of the, the teaching team that it is well worth investing. That sounds fantastic. You know, I should, I should probably qualify my question and saying that, you know, because you know, ultimately, you know, some people choose the role of teaching assistant, not because yes. they're not qualified to do anything else, but because they want the flexibility of leaving school yes. at half past three because they've got, you know, childcare commitments, that kind of thing. Mm. You know, but we, we've got this system where initially it was one teacher, one, one teaching assistant a year could, could have a graduate pathway. Um, but yep. we've had to increase the two because of the interest from them. Um, mm -hmm. And I think in terms of, you know, talking about school culture and talking about, you know, you mentioned behaviour and, and the things you can do when those, you know, understanding how the school operates gives you a massive head start whenever you come into, you know, your your initial teacher training. You know, I think definitely I, I could have done with <laughs> spending two or yes. three years in school. <laughs> you know, I probably still have her. If I, <laughs> <laughs> And so how do you ensure that you are continually developing? I'm not sure I do. I think um, Matt Evans wrote a blog recently about school improvement, where he talked about how continual improvement in any other sector or any, any other domain is might be, even be madness. Like the, he gave the example of home improvements. Like no one is continually improving their home often it's the case of maintenance rather than improvement and I don't think it's possible for continued improvement I think you have to have periods of kind of more downtime or taking the pace a little slower because it's so easy to burn out and to keep chasing to keep chasing the next thing and I think in fact that's uh, Matt's next book is is the next big thing if you're always seeking kind of improvement then you're at risk of just following trends and fashions and fads whereas in terms of improvement I think maintenance is a is a, is a nice kind of 
alternative sometimes just to make sure that kind of I, I still know what I what I need to know I, I could still just check on my understanding of say how French is going or what the history curriculum looks like or what the outcomes are in the, in the music curriculum like, so it's not necessarily improving it's just making sure I'm keeping up because one of, one of the challenges of being an executive head that I've learned in the last two months is that I know a lot less about the the precise details of what's happening in both schools than I did when I was ahead of one school it's much harder to keep on top of what's actually happening and therefore I need to deliberately spend more time to seek that out to keep that knowledge so that when it comes to making decisions I'm still doing it based on the position of of having knowledge about it rather than kind of a, a misconception about what's happening you still need this I, I, for me I think it's keeping on top of what's happening in school maintenance alongside kind of seeking out more knowledge in other things when the time is right like for example this term last few weeks is all about maintenance and not about improvement the the the, the cycle of the school year means that this is a time of difficulty in terms of tiredness exhaustion and that's not the time to push anyone it's, it's a time to kind of consolidate really what's that sense like of looking over and not having as much control because i reckon i'd find that pretty frustrating you know uh, yeah I, I, it's been difficult to deal with but that's a, that's a personal feeling it's a a personal need for control whereas i i kind of get over that by thinking okay i've got two brilliant heads of school who who do know what's happening and and knowing that they know kind of settles my anxiety about it a little bit and, and knowing that there are subject leaders who have real clarity on what it is that we're trying to achieve that settles it a little bit as well so it's, it's, it's getting over myself really and uh, knowing and realizing that I that I'm not going to know everything but to be content with the fact that school leadership knows it it doesn't have to be me yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. As soon as you said that, I was like, yeah, I'm thinking, because obviously over the last 18 months, I've had less opportunity to visit all of my schools at the same time. Mm. But then I'm thinking, yeah, actually, I know he's a really strong subject lead. Yeah. That ship's going to keep going, you know, and, you know, so yes. I, can, I can focus my attention where I am able to go. So, yeah, so as soon as I asked, yeah. as soon as you answered, I was like, yeah, that, that makes total sense. So, and I think it leads quite nicely onto next question which is three things that all aspiring executive head teachers should know before taking on the role so it must be a pretty niche group there <laughs> um so i don't think there's three i'm going to go with five purely because of the work i did to try and understand the role before taking it on and i'm very grateful for um having read david carter's book on mat leadership which is the closest thing or the best thing out there that is relevant to executive headship, I think, um, particularly of a, of a local authority federation. And so he, he had five, he, he's just five things. And I think I, I'm, I'm living by those at the moment. The first one is to know and live up to the, the federation or the trust's values. I think as soon as you've got more than one school, 
sometimes there can be competing priorities. The very first piece of work that we did and are kind of just coming to the end of figuring it out now is, is to make sure that everyone in the two schools knows what we all value. We, the, the schools are both successful in their own right um, and actually have a lot more in common than any of us really realised. We just call it different things. And part of leading more than one school is making sure that when we say something, or when we use a particular word, we're talking about the same thing. So the alignment of values using the same kind of language is an important one. With leadership of more than one school, it's more families, wider part of the community, more staff. And therefore, decision-making becomes a lot more complicated, but it always has to come back to, to values and, and what we think is important. And, and that's why that's kind of number one on what it is that, uh, uh, that, we, that we should know. The second is something I spent a, long, a lot of time thinking about as well. It's, it's, just, it's having a responsive school improvement model. One risk is a, one of the schools in a group being the dominant one often where the, the 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 top leader has come from and the risk is imposing their education model on everyone else even though school's different different contexts and everything else i think having a responsive school improvement model is 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 important you can't just do what the most successful school has been doing i mean i've experienced this I, i've experienced kind of a school the other end of the country doing well with something and that being imposed on uh, my school in a different part of the country in a different context in a different community and that that is not a recipe that works think strategies might work well in a particular context but those leaders solution to their problem you can't transpose someone else's solution to their problem to your problem because the problem's probably probably different and so we have a kind of a broad outline of a school improvement model but it's flexible to the needs of the school or needs of each school this third one is about seeing the schools as one organization that doesn't mean everyone does the same thing but it does mean um, finding ways to to, to build that community feeling of belonging to the whole, to, to the group, to the community, and avoid um, each school being kind of isolated and individual. I think David Carter talks about it as being to, uh, preventing and becoming islands of ordinariness, where uh, the whole point of having a group of schools is to try and benefit everyone and improve each school. And if if schools are just doing what they always did, then what's the point of the collaboration? So yeah, um, seeing, seeing the group of schools as one organization is, a, is an important one. This fourth one is um, having transparent governance, uh, which is a tricky one for, for governors, uh, well, in, in my situation, because they've gone from governing one school, holding one school to account, to holding two schools to account at, as one team. So, whereas before the governors of the junior school didn't know anything about phonics and early years and that kind of thing and key stage one, and the governors of the inter school didn't really know anything about key stage two accountability, now they all need to know about all of it. 
which obviously is a, a, a challenge. But then there's kind of the roles. So often uh, governing boards have linked governor roles where they might take, an, take safeguarding or special educational needs or, or a particular subject. But those, those governors then now need to do the same thing for both schools, to hear from both schools, but to think as one, uh, as one organization, which is, which is a challenge. And, and, and everyone needs to understand that governance structure from uh, staff up and parents up and then from uh, governors down, which is uh, something that we've deliberately tried to work on with multiple meetings this term, because it's our third one next week, next week actually. So we've, we've had three governing body meetings uh, so far this term, which is uh, unusual, but needed because we're in the early stages of uh, setting up a, a federation. And the, the, the last one is about bringing clear and tangible benefits. The whole point of joining schools together and being in charge of more than one school is to make sure that that has a benefit for children and for families and for the community and for staff and for the school. And so part of leading two schools is to make sure that you know what those benefits are, aiming for them and, uh, and uh, make sure they happen because without without those things happening what was the point could the schools could have just just stayed as they were so yeah i think they're five 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 things that executive heads need to know and david carter's book on trust leadership is the best the best thing that there is for aspiring um executive leaders i mean what really stands out is just how complex a role it is um yeah. and i reckon if I, i'd really enjoy in 10 years time when you've been doing the role for a long time come back and ask you the exact same question see how your your answer changes you know because e even though that group will be small i reckon there will be head teachers listening thinking is this something i want to is this my next step or do i do more work with the, the inspector that you know because you're almost sort of you know you've got fewer choices i think once you get into the, you know sort of being the head teacher so i think it'd be really useful certainly for that demographic who are listening thinking what do what do i want to do next and you know going to david carter's book and thinking mm. about the complexity i think is a is, is normally a really good good thing to do you know because then you can make a decision fully and in, fully informed it is a very different job i originally had this ridiculous misconception that if, if there are two schools literally right next to each other on the same site one is key stage two the other is infants it's a bit like being in charge of one fairly big school and it really isn't is even though it's structurally and kind of numerically the same it's really not the same as one school because each school has its own identity its own culture its own ways of working that mean that you can't just do the same thing in both schools and that obviously takes time because well, it takes twice as long as, as it would, would would normally. You have to kind of be tuned into those contexts, otherwise any attempts to improve or even maintain may not even work. Yeah, like I say, I'm looking forward to that in 10 years' time, we'll be at 20, 31, <laughs> and seeing how I see how we... <laughs> Something that comes across in your work, you know, definitely as we're speaking today, is, is clarity of explanation. I suppose, what advice do you have for anyone looking to increase their ability to communicate clearly? Well, first of all, thank you. That's very kind. I think if you want to 
have clarity, the first thing is, is the same message that I've kind of said multiple times already. You need to know what it is yourself. I think sometimes leaders rush too quickly into learning something themselves and then putting it across to other people without thinking through what the key points of the message are uh, and how to explain it. So the, the knowing it first is is really important. I think the timing of the message is is that second one. It's we, we often it's easy to fall into a trap where because you've read something or you've heard something or you've thought about something, then you expect others to to have the same background knowledge as you. It's really easy to to assume that others know what you know or have read what you've read or have experienced what you've experienced but explaining something for others has to take into account what they already know and their starting point same with children you have to kind of establish what the starting point is and then build on that and and it takes time you have to kind of release it slowly which is often goes against all of our urges to for action and to do things quickly and uh, and and the enthusiasm we have for a particular thing but I think generally speaking it's a good thing to have an understanding of of a particular concept that's further developed than you are explaining it to others because inevitably you're not explaining something on the level that you understand it you're explaining something on level you need others to understand it we often fall into that trap of narrating our own understanding of something and that's one of the things that we work on at school with uh, with people who are presenting is don't just explain your own understanding explain the concept and it's really easy to fall into that trap of narrating your under, under, understanding of something which is probably what i've just been doing ironically <laughs> no not at all i mean i'm thinking about my own articulation of ideas and thinking yes I, i'm definitely recognizing you know the times that i have explained my <laughs> rather than the concept but also that gulf between what you understand and what you want other people to understand yeah can be massive and like you say it's mm. very easy to underestimate where mm. you're going to with it yeah so i think you know in terms of the next question you know we're talking about research in berkshire i think that's one for anyone who's looking to speak at uh, at the conference yes <laughs> to really consider <laughs> You know, when you, when you see people um, and you see you get to see about six or seven a day at Research Ed, you know, you can see those people who have really thought about how they're going to try and get the information across. Um, because, you know, there's almost that, that extra level of clarity, you know, the one that I would mm -hmm. ascribe to your to your work. Um, you know, and then you're thinking, right, I, now I have an understanding of this of this theme because it's often quite complex themes that are being yes. explored of these things. Um, so I don't know how new this is, but I recently saw that Research Ed Berkshire was, had been announced. What made you decide to get involved in the organisation of, of an event and what plans do you have in store? So I've always enjoyed um, going to the events, um, the, the national ones, and um, I've seen, we, we saw that kind of the regional ones are popping up in different places. And I think I, I just wanted to kind of bring it closer to where I work and where I live to to get to make it more accessible to to the teachers who are teaching the children in our towns because um, it's, it's really easy to think that kind of social media twitter research ed is the norm but it's not is there are more teachers that don't know about it than do 
And so bringing, making it accessible is, I think, one of the reasons we're doing it. The people that, that we're working with, I mean, are, br are brilliant. Karen was a governor at my school. She's kind of a, a, a stalwart of research head. I hope she wouldn't mind me saying. And having her on board to organise it with us and to bring research to our, our towns, I think, is, it, I think we're really lucky. Um, so, so Karen's been a huge um, influence on, uh, on, on this. Um, Navroop is great. She, she kind of works where I live, is a, is a big proponent of equality of, uh, and, and opportunities for children, particularly disadvantaged children. And I think the combination that we have of the kind of the, the, the why for doing it is really strong. We, we, we just want to, to bring research informed discussion and the conversations to our schools, to local schools, so that the children where we work, the children where we live, um, have an opportunity to do, have even better teaching than they do at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's very easy to underestimate that we're what the 5% who are on social media or whatever and, and engaging on this yeah. level. Um, I mean, was it Research Head Surrey recently? And I've had a few people sort of DM me and say, oh, you know, I assumed everybody who was at my talk was familiar with the podcast or why, why else would they want to listen to me speak? Um, but actually, they, they, they were teachers from the local area who had been brought along by their schools and stuff and think, okay, and then they'd, they'd seen primary mathematics. And so, yeah, so I've got to unassume that everybody, like you say, everybody knows what I know. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah, it's, it's really strange, but I think it's a really great thing. And I know that the more areas of, you know, because England and the United Kingdom, it's, it's quite, a, it's quite, it's very easy to think about London and the, yeah. the general area. The further out into the different parts of the sort of the islands we go, I think the, the better served our teachers will be. You know, it's fantastic. And have, what, what, do you, have you got any plans in store for your sort of your keynote speaker or anything out there? Um, so we've, we've contacted a couple um, and uh, waiting to hear back, but we're, we've also put um, the, uh, the, the call for speakers out, which is great. So you're more than welcome to, to come along uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're nearby. We'd uh, love to have you. And, and listeners as well, if uh, what, we, what we want is a combination of um, established voices and new voices. We want local and national is we want a mixture of different representations so we're really keen to hear from uh lots of different people that may haven't maybe haven't done this before um to share what they're doing in their in their schools to to benefit others the next step is to get permission from the wife to uh, to travel <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely definitely because then yeah yeah no but it, it's been fantastic talking to you thank you very much for joining me today you're welcome thanks for having me